Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another very special episode of the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, we have an extremely special guest, Michael Saylor, who doesn't even really need an introduction at this point, as well as this week, uh, Mason Joppa, our CEO, will be co-hosting the conversation. Mr. Saylor, thank you so much for your time. Happy to have you on. How are you doing? Looking forward to it. Awesome. Um, I just wanted to first start with, like, are you doing anything for the holidays? Bitcoin and chill. Nice. <laughs> Giving the gift of Bitcoin to everybody. Looking forward Netflix to and a, chill. Looking forward yeah. to a comfortable holiday season. Nice. I first wanted to start with like, what did you think about the hearing last week uh, with SBF and Brian Brooks? Um, I forget for the, the spokeswoman, um, the from from Coinbase. Um, what did you think of that whole hearing? Like, what were kind of the key takeaways from that, from your perspective? And uh, did you think it was kind of the uh, you know beneficial thing for the space? I think there's a lot of support for the entire crypto industry in uh, in Congress and the House, and I think it's pretty clear there's a lot of political support for uh, for the crypto economy. That's the number one takeaway. It was a fairly friendly hearing, uh, to my mind, and uh, it just reinforced my views on regulation in general, which are. I mean, everybody knows we need stable coins and stable coins will be welcomed into the ecosystem. But the preference, the preference of the regulators is insured banks. The politicians are a bit more flexible. I think they would uh, they'd be happy to allow a few other on ramps. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to be some sort of public vehicle where you have um, transparency and disclosure and licensing of the stablecoin issuers. And there's a little bit of tug of war about whether it'll be only FDIC or it'll be state chartered, state chartered banks and money transfer agents or some other public, uh, public organization. If they're deemed as securities, right, then the, then the lowest, the lowest plateau for a security would be you got to make a disclosure of um, of the risk related to the uh, to the ownership of the securities, and that would be a lower threshold. Uh, requiring an FDIC bank to issue a stablecoin is the highest threshold, I think. With regard to you know everything else, you know it's uh, DeFi security tokens and the like. I I didn't really sense a lot of hostility from the politicians with regard to anything, as far as I could see. And as I've said before, I really think the big winner is Bitcoin and all these, because the one thing that's unsaid that's, that's yet said is there really isn't any controversy around the status of Bitcoin as digital property, the status of Bitcoin as a property, not a security. Bitcoin is not a currency. It's not a security. It is a property. Uh, it is not, um, and it, it is not in and of itself a centralized entity. Everything else in the ecosystem either looks like a currency and it gets regulated. You know, if it's currency, like tether or circle, right? Then, uh, then there's we're either going to regulate it like a security, and you're going to have to be a public company, and you're going to have to make full disclosures on a quarterly basis. That's or, or like a mutual fund. That's the best you could hope for. And the more extreme is you need an FDIC charter license, right? And then the debate will be, can it be a state bank or can it be a federally chartered bank? So, so we know that about stable coins. Um, 
with regard to all the DeFi and the security tokens, I mean, they all look like they're securities and now there's a tossling about whether there should be light securities regulation or heavier securities guidelines. And it's, uh, it's unclear. They didn't really define, they, they didn't decide anything there. Uh, what, they, what they did uh, kind of just generally all you uniformly agree on is Bitcoin is property not to be regu- not to be regulated by the SEC or the Treasury or the uh, CFTC uh, in any way other than just seeing ordinary uh, customary and ordinary uh, expectations around transfer taxes prop you know uh, capital gains taxes and and classic uh, asset transfer disclosures at some level so that's my takeaway. I mean, generally, I don't know how you could be anything other than bullish about, about the entire asset class when you watch that, if you're a Bitcoiner. Sure. And, and what are your thoughts about kind of the evolution of regulation around Bitcoin moving forward? Um, and then I guess like kind of the, um, you know, jam pack, like uh, a, a side of that question as well is like, what do you think about the trade-offs between sovereignty and regulation? Because obviously regulation is something that we're going to have to face moving forward with the asset class, but obviously kind of the, you know, sovereign individual ethos of Bitcoin is, is very at the, you know, uh, heart of a lot of the hardcore hodlers of the asset. So what do you kind of think about some of the uh, kind of sacrifices that will have to be made in that sense moving forward? Um, well, first of all, I think that all the regulatory uncertainty right now and the political climate revolves around crypto exchanges, stable coins, sec- and, and uh, security tokens, and DeFi exchanges, and all the yield products, and, and all the advanced applications, right? That's where the regulatory uncertainty is, right? All the, all the back and forth about what will happen and when it will happen really relates to digital securities, digital exchanges, digital currencies. Bitcoin's digital property, there aren't, there, we're not really having much in the way of serious debates around that. Like no one's questioning whether you can take uh, personal custody of your Bitcoin, right? That's not on the table. And so what, what I think in general about the crypto industry is there's there's 20 or 30 pretty powerful uh, regulatory regimes, you know, Japan, Korea, China, they're all going back and forth and they have different various degrees of, of view on this. And uh, there's gonna be a lot of regulatory intervention in the crypto economy in general around OTC trading. Can you trade with leverage? Can you, know, can you, can you have a 20 to one margin loan? Can I, can I trade uh, without a tax disclosure? What are the tax disclosures? Can I trade the security token without a securities disclosure? All of that's gonna go on for the next three to five years. I think that that's, and if you're invested in any of those things, if, if you're either in the business of it or you're issuing one or you're owning them, then I think it's, it's uh, an uncertain regime. It's very risky, very complicated. And, uh, and there's, it's not clear what the answer will be other than the fact that the US will be probably the driver and whatever, whatever the US decides, Treasury, SEC, CFTC, 
that will probably drive 80% of the direction of the rest of the world, but not 100%. There's always, you know, there's always going to be a bit of diverse, diversity there in, in views. Now, with regard to Bitcoin and, and property rights in general, my view there is I just I think Bitcoiners angst a lot about this more than they need to. There's like $750 trillion of property in this world that's owned by non-Bitcoin people that have lesser rights than the, uh, the worst case for Bitcoin. Like, like if you conceive of, try to figure out what is the worst case for Bitcoin over the next decade. The worst case for Bitcoin might be right now, as far as I can see, it's like, if you take custody of all your Bitcoin off the exchange, you have to admit that you took it. Okay, that, that's like, you have to say, I wired 20 Bitcoin to myself. Okay, and there's a disclosure. That's the worst case. And now you have the Bitcoin and you could have it in any of 100,000 counterparties. You can send it anywhere in 30 minutes and you've got it on a hardware device or you've got it on any device, okay? Now, I want you to think about that worst case. And now I want you to think about the best case for the equivalent amount of gold, silver, property, equity, Apple stock, government bonds, corporate bonds, collectibles, art, now tell me, is there anything else on earth that you would rather be holding than Bitcoin that you admitted to the government that you hold? I mean, try making your uh, building in the middle of Manhattan disappear in a boating accident, right? That's a good one, yeah. You know not what I mean? Happening. It's not happening. So I think that, by the way, try making your yacht disappear in a boating accident, okay? The point really is, I think that Bitcoin, the Bitcoin community is very smart. They're very smart and they're very paranoid. And to paraphrase Andy Grove, only the paranoid survive. That's good. That's why I love them. I love them. I love all the Bitcoins, right? And I, I, I love the hodlers and, and I really appreciate all the thought that goes into uh, defending the network, defending the asset class. But I think from a practical point of view, Right. The conclusion you come to is every other piece of property, everything else in the crypto ecosystem, everything in the non-crypto ecosystem is inferior to hold under any possible outcome than Bitcoin is right now. So the answer is you ought to just buy Bitcoin. You ought to hold Bitcoin. You ought to tell everybody else to hold Bitcoin. And then when you consider, uh, you know, how do you feel about someone, you know, uh, all these things? Well, I mean, the answer is, this is a twisty one, you know, like um, it turns out that you can fight really, really hard, uh, take the extreme anarchist libertarian point of view to protect all 6,500 cryptos, right? There should, you know, they're all, they all should, I can, I should be able to create my own Dogecoin, yo-yo coin, that's a currency, that's a privacy coin, that's a security that gives yield that I can send to anybody, right? That's the extreme libertarian view. You could take that view to, to protect Bitcoin. On the other hand, you might be hurting yourself because if all those things disappeared tomorrow, the money would probably flow into Bitcoin. So, so you see, it's a very interesting situation. I think, um, I don't think we have to fear the government. 
not right now, like maybe in a decade. If you look at right now, uh, most of the of people concerned about regulation in the Bitcoin community, they're extrapolating from an altcoin. Like there's an altcoiner that was issued by some group of people that are going and they're running to the Bitcoin community saying, you know, if the, if the SEC regulates us as a security or we can't keep doing what, whatever we're doing, then they'll come for you next. Well, no, I don't think they will. They won't come for us next. Like, like if someone's running an illegal boiler room pump and dump scheme to defraud the general public and the SEC says you got to stop, I don't think that's a threat to Bitcoin. Right. So, so I, I think that we overreact and so, and we don't need to overreact. I don't really see any initiative that prevents anybody from owning Bitcoin as digital property. Right. And I think almost if you cloak yourself with every other altcoin, you undermine your case for digital property. I don't, I don't think you improve it. And I think, um, I think, we should just come back to the observation that the enemy is not the government. The enemy is property. The enemy is alternate property. If there's $750 trillion worth of money invested in global equities, 300, 300 billion in debt, right? 120 billion in global equity, 300 billion in real estate. All of that stuff has inferior property rights to Bitcoin. So all you have to do is just cheerfully educate the world as to why they're building their ranch land, their oil well drilling rights, all of those things, all their, their intellectual property is inferior to Bitcoin. It's all inferior to Bitcoin, right? And, and, uh, and within, any, within any ecosystem, if you're in Venezuela, Bitcoin is the best property in Venezuela. I don't have an opinion about the government. In Turkey, Bitcoin is the best property in Turkey. I don't have to have an opinion about the government. In Argentina, Bitcoin is the best property in Argentina. In the US, Bitcoin is the best property in the US. In China, Bitcoin is the best property, right? Now, how do you feel about capital controls, wage controls, price controls, you know, labor controls? political laws, religious laws, everybody's got stuff that they could disagree with. But if you choose to disagree with all those things, right, you're going to be in conflict with a, a lot of people that aren't against Bitcoin, you're just turning them against Bitcoin, right? Right, like, a, you know, when you go to an Islamic country, right, Bitcoin is neither Christian nor Islamic, right? Like, you don't really want to get into that. When you go to any country, it's not Democrat, it's not Republican, right? It's, it's not this or that. It's just better property than the alternative property. The only place, I think the only place in the world where, where uh, a person who's pro-Bitcoin is in conflict with the government is in a true communist regime. If you're in a regime where the, where the ethos of the government is private property or individual ownership of all property is illegal, right? There's a few, right? Maybe like North Korea, Cuba. In the, uh, in, in the Soviet regime in Russia, right? In theory, no one could own anything, right? And that changed. But, but you know, people can own property in China. They can own property in Russia. We have, there are a lot of political regimes which are different. As long as it's legal to own property, 
then instead of fighting the battle, like instead of saying, well, I want to topple securities law, or I want to, I, I want to change the tax code, I want to change the security code, you know, I want to change the political system. I just, you know, instead of fighting that battle, I think just fight one battle, which is Bitcoin is better property than an acre of land. It's better property than 37 donkeys. It's better property than a lump of gold, right? Is it legal to make a decision to own a hundred donkeys instead of a stack of corn, instead of an acre of land, instead of a Bitcoin? If it is, then 99% of the solution to our problem is go find the people that own oil wells and own natural gas fields and own farmland and own tall buildings and cities and own too many cars and own stuff and convince them to sell that stuff or mortgage that stuff and buy Bitcoin. And, and you know, how should you do it? Well, within the system that you live in, <laughs> right? Respect the laws and respect the culture of the society you live in. But by all means, don't invest in a hundred donkeys. Don't invest in a bar of gold. Don't invest. You know, the government, the government doesn't have a law that says you have to have 100% of your assets in the local currency, right? Like there aren't very many. I mean, by the way, when they get there, that's kind of like getting close to communism, you know. So there, it's possible we'll get to something. Do you like think that. we are going there? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. On that no, note. I don't think we're going there. I think that uh, I think that we spend a lot of time worrying about that, and I just think it's a waste of time and energy. I think there's there's a lot of fighting about like like about who can come up with a bigger doomsday scenario than the next person. It's like yeah, it's colorful. I mean, it'll get you like some engagement on Twitter. But no, I, I think, again, what's, what's the total value of all assets in the United States other than Bitcoin that's called an asset or a property, right? Isn't that It number? depends if we're uh, subtracting out debt from those, <laughs> from those no, assets. No, but the point is the debt's included. Yeah. And there are people that you meet every day that own the debt. And, uh, and so... If, uh, if you're talking to the public, right, I think the battle you want to fight is to persuade people that owning a Bitcoin is better than owning a corporate bond. Owning a Bitcoin is better than owning a small building, right? Just uh, all you're doing is trading up weak assets for strong assets. I think, you know, and, and leave, leave the politics. Like you, we can fight over tax, right? We can but now you're a politician. Like do you have an opinion about, you know, how the tax system should work. That's, that's a political decision. You, you can fight over currency, that's a political decision. You know, the irony, you know, what I've said before is what's gonna happen as far as I can see is that US dollar is gonna run on stable coin. And when that gets released in size by an FDIC approved bank, the stable coin business is gonna go from 180 billion to a trillion to 10 trillion. And when that happens, it's going to collapse the currencies of like 30 countries that will remain nameless. 
And when the currencies collapse, because everybody basically sells that local currency to buy the dollar, wouldn't you rather just have, you know, the, the mainstream media write stories about how the State Department is explaining to the ambassador from such and such that we're sorry that their citizens have adopted the dollar instead of the local currency. I mean, leave it to the State Department, right? Leave it to the government, right? Do, do you really want to be on the hook? Uh, like, if the choice was pick a country, the U.S. dollarize that country, or uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoinize that country. Well, you know, the, at the end of the day, I mean, I think the, the U.S. government can take care of itself, right? They're not going to arrest the ambassador from, from the U.S. when they call him to, to express their discontent about the fact that the citizens have dollarized. You, you really want to be the ambassador of Bitcoin and show up and say the same thing? Like, uh, my point is, you're fighting a battle 20 years or 30 years early. You don't need to fight. Will we ever get to the point where there are no nation states and there's no, no currencies that are issued by sovereign powers? It's not really a debate for the next decade. Like this decade, the debate is, is Bitcoin better property than all the other properties in the world? And then, and the answer is, yeah. And now the question is just, well, how do I buy some? Yeah, and, then, and your strategy of uh, taking on debt or trading your alternate assets for Bitcoin is you know, very apparent. What are your thoughts on, on interest-bearing products that are paid out in native, uh, particularly those that are coming out that are um, non-custodial, right? Where you can maintain control of your Bitcoin and, and maintain your keys and you maintain your Bitcoin currency and you can still receive interest on that. I think that's super intriguing, but to the to the inverse of the products that exist now, where you have to, you know, store your product with a or store, store your your property, aka your Bitcoin, with a custodian to receive the interest. Um, do you have any opinions on those products? Yeah, well, I mean, you're describing a lot of DeFi stuff, and my opinion is there's twelve billion dollars worth of DeFi hacks in the past two years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like okay so yeah it's a it's intriguing but uh, again this is an example of of i think the perfect becomes the enemy of the good in theory it would be nice if i could take my bitcoin put it into a decentralized protocol and generate yield on it the problem with it is uh, technically it's insecure right you're they're getting hacked all like three times a week right <laughs> Like every every few days, right? There's yeah, hundreds of millions a week. Okay, at this so point. so that's one problem. It's a technical security problem. The second problem is if you understand securities law, then you understand that they're all securities. Okay, if you when when you're actually uh, you're doing it with a staking, maybe you could come up with a way to do it with just pure Bitcoin. Like, I mean, the closest thing is almost like getting some yield on a Lightning node or something, but. If you could, but but all the approaches people have solved so far are with security tokens, and the security the tokens are securities, which means that you have to issue them pursuant to a registration statement. If you don't, it's illegal, not to mention unethical, right? So, I mean, the, again, this this takes us back to this issue, which is you live in a, in the United States. Yeah, you, know, you can go get a yield 
if you're if you're a consumer, you can go get a yield, um, and you're getting it from some some. Uh, are you getting it from a bank or that where it's got a license, or are you getting it from an unlicensed entity? Right. If it's a security token, that's its own thing. That's you know you're pretty much trading altcoins that are not licensed, and that's I think that's risky in so many different ways. Not to mention the fact that there's ten thousand of them eventually. So which one do you want to hold for a while? So that's that's speculation. Uh, if you're actually just posting collateral into an unlicensed yield generator. It doesn't have a license. You can get a yield, but the problem is they're not licensed, right? So you have lots of regulatory actions. And then you don't, the whole point of the regulators there is when you give me your money and I agree to give you 6% yield, how do I generate the yield? I have to go and I have to loan it out to some counterparty. Now, what if I loan it to some counterparty? What do they do? They short it in the market. And then what if they're, or they hedge it, they sell covered calls or they, they, they trade in options. And what if, uh, what if Bitcoin trades within a 20% band? Well, then you get your yield. What if it trades in a 42% band? Well, then they get forced liquidated. You get wiped out. You lose all your principal. The bank fails. Okay. Do you know that? What kind of risk are you taking? Right. Um, you're just investing in a hedge fund but you're investing in a hedge fund without understanding the strategy of the hedge fund. So, so the problem with that is that, you know, ethically and legally, if I'm going to run a hedge fund and take money from the public, I, I have an obligation to file a registration statement and tell everybody what kind of risk I'm taking. Right. I mean, that's what every public company does. And that's what every mutual fund does. This is the, this is what I'm going to do with your money to get the, get the yield. Okay, so fine. Uh, that's what I'm going to do. If you, if you wanted to invest your money in a yield generating fund and you had that adequate disclosure, then I don't have a, a problem with it. I mean, I think that you've been given proper disclosure and you bought a security and you've taken securities risk. Now, the problem, of course, is you bought a security, but they, there was no securities disclosure. So you're sitting in this gray zone where technically it is illegal and the regulators could shut it down and seize the asset, right? So if you're sitting in the middle of that operation, as in, do I want to be the investor waiting to see how that gets wrapped up? Do I want to be on the other side? That's, that's just a gray zone. So I wouldn't uh, pursue it. Now, I get, the, I get the opposite point of view, which is, well, I can give my money to JP Morgan and they give me 20 basis points. Yeah, I get it. You've got this really difficult situation, right? You have, a, you have um, one safe zone. I can either hold dollars at no yield or I can hold Bitcoin at no yield. Those are both safe havens, right? It's well understood that you can own, own currency at an FDIC insured bank. And it's understood you can own digital property. Those are two obvious, clear zones. These other zones, you know, can I own a stable coin issued by a non-FDIC insured institution and put it into some contract with some exchange where they give me some yield, but the exchange doesn't have a license. It's based on a security token that's not issued pursuant to securities law. You know, I'm trusting a lot of counterparties here. <laughs> But I'm getting a yield, right? 
right? You're altcoining everyone. So I like, uh, I don't think it's worth the risk right now because the theoretical yield on digital property is quite high, right? It's a theory, I mean, still the 10 year yield on Bitcoin is 150%, even the one year yield right now is 100%, right? So if you're chasing after 5% yield or 10% yield, let's say, let's say I'm giving you 10% yield, you're chasing after another 10%, but risking everything and risking a lot, you know, do you really wanna risk everything to chase after 10%? I, I, don't, I think that again, like there's, there is a very, um, there's an ideological aspect to Bitcoin, non-custodial. Non-custodial is really important for one thing, for the property, the underlying Bitcoin token. But here's, here's another point I'd make. The, the most important innovation in the century, right? The thing that's like maybe the most important innovation in property in 5,000 years is Bitcoin. It's non-custodial decentralized digital property. That's the innovation. Everybody keeps trying to re reapply this innovation to every other layer. Like 80% of the value took place when we just created the Bitcoin. If a centralized entity held the decentralized property, you would have a profound advance forward. So for example, if if JP Morgan went and they bought a million Bitcoin tomorrow, you would have a decentralized property held by a centralized entity. The price of Bitcoin would go to 10 million a coin. And every hodler, right? Every Bitcoiner with Bitcoin and coal storage everywhere in the world would have Bitcoin worth $10 million a coin. Now, there's gonna be 100,000 platforms, 100 million companies, there's 10,000 decentralized cryptocurrencies or, I mean, things that people are trying to represent as decentralized. There's all sorts of non-custodial, this and the other thing. Does any of it matter? No, nothing matters. There's only one thing in the world that matters, which is Bitcoin, right? If, if a government, if the government of Russia or the government of Saudi Arabia went and decided to buy a million Bitcoin or 100,000 Bitcoin, 500,000 Bitcoin, if, if Apple did. You see, the whole point is we created a stable point. We, we created property in cyberspace for the first time in the history of the human race. Now, there's a lot of non-custodial decentralized things you can do with it. And there, many of them are good. Like if you're in a hostile regime, like if you live in a communist regime and they're going to murder you because you have property, then you need peer-to-peer non-custodial wallets. I get it right? In Cuba or North Korea, where the government thinks you should lose your life and lose your freedom, should you own anything, then you need it. But uh, if you live in the United States, where, where you have property rights, and you have a legal right to own things, like, do you still need all these non-custodial, do you need 10,000 non-custodial crypto networks and non-custodial everything under the sun? Or do you need non-custodial decentralized yield generating? Do you need decentralized insurance and decentralized banking and decentralized NFT, this, that, and the other thing? And it's like, and my answer is no. <laughs> like, yeah, there, there's like this, there's this fascination with it. 
it's like uh, you got a square peg or people came up with like a, a hammer. So everything's a nail and they just keep, they want to use the hammer on everything. But really there's one thing which is the solution to half the problems on earth. One thing, Bitcoin. And then the next 100,000 things is going to be the answer to 5% of the problems on earth. But you know what the problem is? The next 100,000 things are going to be non-compliant. So you've, you have one thing which is compliant in, in uh, the world, in, non in, in the socialist and the capitalist world and a world of property rights. Bitcoin is compliant. It is legal to own property. Now, is it legal, you know, to do DeFi, you know, yield generation, you know, credit default swaps on decentralized exchanges? You know, how about do uh, triple anonymous wash transactions on NFTs that I sold to myself six times with leverage? I mean, none of that stuff is legal, right? But, you know, maybe it's legal somewhere in cyberspace, but it, let's just use the word compliant. It's just, you've just... Every single thing you're trying to do when you're trying to de, if you're trying to dematerialize insurance and banking and art, you know, I mean, that's what this is, right? NFT is dematerialized art, right? And DeFi is dematerialized, you know, banking and dematerialized exchanges. And when you're trying to dematerialize all this other stuff, you're tripping over all these compliance rails. And, uh, and I think that I think the cognitive mistake, and, and I, I wish I could come up with a better way to explain it to people, the cognitive mistake, that the mistake that people keep making over and over and over again is they think that because Bitcoin needs to be decentralized, everything that touches it needs to be decentralized as well. And that and that second thing is that's just an error. Like uh, centralized governments right? Uh, compliant governments, uh, public investors, public companies, public institutions, centralized agencies that have, uh, that are custodial, they all can benefit from Bitcoin and, they, and all of their engagement benefits Bitcoin. Like this, this issue with non-custodial, well, at the end of the day, you're the custodian, right? Like, so, I mean, there's no such thing really as non-custodial because a family, the patriarch of the family becomes the custodian and the beneficiaries are all the family members. So ultimately, you know, until we get down to a world of 8 billion individuals that don't trust each other, right? There's a custodian somewhere. And, and uh, it's not a problem. It really isn't. It's not a problem. There's one thing that needs to be non-custodial, and the one thing is Bitcoin. Like once you've created that one thing, everything else, like, like you want to generate yield. Well, I mean, the truth is, a company, Fidelity, Coinbase, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, they could all go to the SEC and they could create a Bitcoin yield fund. Fidelity could create a Bitcoin yield fund right now. Anybody in the mutual fund business could go and create a Bitcoin yield fund where they basically file a registration statement and they say, look, we're going to hold Bitcoin. We're going to sell the volatility on Bitcoin. We're going to sell out of the money calls and we're going to generate effectively 12% yield. 
and we're going to give up all the upside over 40%. And maybe we're going to collar it or not collar it. So the volatility is going to go from 80 vol to 40 vol, and the yield is going to go from zero to 8%. And over time, probably your principal will appreciate it 30% a year instead of 60% a year. By the way, would I buy it? No, right? Because I'd rather have 60% a year tax deferred than 30% a year tax deferred and 12% a year taxable because you would end up in California paying 52% of the yield. So yeah, work out in your head, right? What do you get? You got 35% after tax instead of 60% after tax. And who benefited? Whoever set up the mutual fund, they scrape 1% fee or some hedge fund scrapes two and 20. Yeah, you know, two and 20 is 2% management fee, 20% of the upside. Any number of hedge funds will be happy to basically take 2% of your principal, 20% of the gains and give you a yield fund or yield vehicle on top of Bitcoin. And they could, and you, and you can do it in a compliant, ethical, legal fashion in the US. Nothing's stopping you from buying that or getting that product, right? And the rules are different in every other country. And maybe in China, the rules are different again. But, you know, last I checked, you know, Bridgewater Capital invest in China, you know, like Ray Dalio's on television talking about. It. So all of these things are possible. I, I just think like, this is, and this is, a, it sounds like a Bitcoin maximalist position, but it isn't quite. It's like, I think that the revolutionary innovation is digital property in the form of BTC. And now, if you want to go do things, the right way to think of it is pair Fidelity with Bitcoin and pair Apple with Bitcoin and, care and pair a bank with Bitcoin and pair everything on earth with Bitcoin. Everything. Your insurance. Do you have decentralized non-custodial life insurance right now? No. Do you want it? When you die, who, when, when they don't pay your insurance plan, when you die, who do your, you know, you know, you've got an insurance policy from an anonymous person on Twitter and there's a rug pull and you don't collect on the policy and who do you complain to? People don't really want a non-custodial life insurance policy in the United States. At least there, there isn't political sentiment for that. If I walked down the street and I asked a hundred people, would you like to buy your food, you know, from someone you don't know? Would you like to buy your life insurance from someone you don't know? Would you like, yeah, you know, would you like, figure it out? People are kind of comfortable doing business with people they know. Do you have anxiety about the government? Yeah, sure I do. Do you have anxiety about the future? Yeah, sure I do. But would you like to have uh, cities and countries and companies? I think so. So I think that you got some money, you have an opportunity buy Bitcoin. You want to invest in something? Invest in a company that's using Bitcoin, right? You want to live in a country? Live in a country that lets you own Bitcoin. You want to fix the thing? Put some Bitcoin in it. Like that's, that's a very straightforward view. Here's the other view. You want to fix your country? Let's make it a DAO. Let's issue a 
You want to fix your city? Let's, let's create a city token. Let's, you want to fix your insurance policy? Let's create an, you know, a DeFi insurance thing in cyberspace with nobody running it. You know, like, I mean, it's, you know, let's apply non-custodial decentralized principles. There's the problem, you know, as far as I can see, like there's been one successful project called Bitcoin, right? Now uh, there's 6,500 cryptos. Name the next 12 that are property, right? We can have a debate. Bitcoin forks, but but you know they would they would like half the time they might or might not be able to make the case. Now you have six thousand cryptos that are projects, but the, but they use the word project, but that's interchangeable with it's really company. It's a project is venture, right? They're all just venture uh, venture capital investments with project teams, and in some cases they converted their company to a foundation. You know, but a foundation is a company. You know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, no one's figured out how to actually do this. And, and, and for good reason. If I wanted to sell life insurance in a decentralized, non-custodial fashion, have you read all the life insurance laws in every state of the United States? Do you know how many laws there are you'd have to comply with? It's a lot of code, right? Probably hundreds. I mean, <laughs> hundreds of laws. How do you get 17 random developers to come together to implement 1,000 pages of intricate life insurance code and keep it up to date? I mean, it doesn't, isn't it obvious it's a daunting, impossible prospect? You know what it's like? If it, it, you want a good, a good example, look at SAP and Oracle and all their accounting software. When you, when you create accounting software to account for anything, the sale of any product, right? You have statutory requirements. You have armies of, of programmers. You know, when they change the tax code, we have to change the accounting software, right? If you pay some, if you with, withhold 32% instead of 27% on January 1st, right? Your company's going to blow itself up, right? You either bust your financials or all your employees come at you with pitchforks, right? Because you withdrew the... The amount you can't run an accounting system with decentralized non-custodial code sets. Just can't do it, right? And so the the idea that uh, everything ought to be open source, non-custodial, that doesn't really make sense. In fact, I give you a different idea, which is if you look at the world, you've got the crypto where you've got digital property. You've got digital currency, you have uh, digital platforms, and you have digital applications. Bitcoin's digital property, right? So it, the key to it, can you create digital property in non-custodial decentralized way? Yeah, you can. Is it hard? Yeah, there's like a 99% failure rate, right? I mean, th there's a high failure rate. Like it's like starting, you know, it's like you're a, a boy scout you're starting a campfire and it's wet outside and there's like a hundred people trying it and one dude succeeds and they start the fire and if you've ever been out camping wet and cold and one of you started the fire you know we all run toward the person that started the fire and we try to bar the fire right and it doesn't always work that way so it's hard to start a fire but it's such a simple idea now go to the other things, digital currency, what's the problem? The problem is it's gotta be compliant with banking laws. 
okay, and KYC AML. And what if it isn't? It's illegal. That's the problem, <laughs> right? That's the problem. It's very simple. So how are you going to stay compliant? We well, have to keep control of it, right? You notice these stable coins, they can actually, um, they, they can actually seize your tokens like Tether or Circle, right? I mean, they're not non-custodial, right? They're, right. The first thing you do if you, if you pull off a DeFi hack is you get rid of the Tether and the Circle because you, because you know that if you're holding a stable coin, then it could be seized by a central authority. So they are central. Okay, so is there a way to do it without being centralized? Not really. I mean, not legally. Like, I mean, you can create, um, you can create a, a non-custodial stable coin die, right? So, so you could try to do something like that, but then you run into the issue of now it's a security. So now you, it, it has to be so simple that nobody maintains it. Well, if it's a security, then uh, uh, a compliant exchange can't trade it. Are you following where this is going? Like what's the on-ramp yeah. and the off-ramp? Right. If it's a security, that's a that's a challenge. So, so the problem with currencies is you got to uh, you got to deal with AML, KYC, terrorist laws. And and so they're not going to be compliant unless they're issued by banks. If you're going to be a stable coin, that is a currency. So then you go to platforms. You want to be a DeFi platform like ETH or whatever. Well, you're basically an exchange. The problem is there are laws around what exchanges can do. Right, you got to be a national securities exchange. You have to agree with, you have to comply with surveillance requests. You know, you have to comply with certain leverage requirements. There's all, there's all sorts, there's disclosure, there's tax disclosure requirements, et cetera. So now you're, you're back to being compliant. Well, how do you, how can you be compliant if you're non custodial? Doesn't work. So you eventually end up becoming a company and you're security and you can do it if you're a Coinbase, you know, you've got a headquarters, try doing it without being a headquarters, it becomes a problem. And then you've got applications. Well, the app application to do what? To move property rights? Okay, so you just sold an NFT and it's my painting and I own the copyright, but you just sold it. So I sue you. You're gonna run that platform? <clears throat> What do you think would happen to YouTube if, um, if um, the Eagles go to YouTube or Fox News goes to YouTube and says, look, we have copyright on that television or that album and you're running it or, or like Yo-Yo Dine is, is basically stole my music and they've uploaded it to YouTube and they're getting paid per view, right? They have to take it down, right? If you're going to be a platform or, you know, any kind of application, <clears throat> then if you want to, you have two choices. You can either become non-compliant, non-custodial. Good luck with that. But that means that nobody can touch it, right? <laughs> it's got to, it's got to run itself. Try to figure that one out. I don't, you can't really easily do that with complicated applications. In fact, Bitcoin did it. The way we do it is every 10 minutes, you know, we do, few thousand transactions you think youtube could do it that way not likely no way yeah so what you end up doing is you put a kyc aml gate it's like youtube could 
YouTube could uh, ignore all the intellectual property laws in the United States if they didn't allow United States citizens to use the platform. Right? How's, how's that work out for a business plan? We're just going to prevent everybody with money in the world that, you know, lives in a rich country from using the platform and the platform moves money around. Huh? Run that by me again. Challenge. So here's the, I mean, here's the big idea. It may be impossible. Maybe it's impossible to do non-custodial decentralized applications, platforms, or currencies. It's quite possible. Like no one's really dealing with that elephant in the room there. It's a, it's a beautiful idea, but it's unproven. There's only one thing that's proven, right? Bitcoin. We have proven that we can create a non-custodial decentralized digital asset network, which serves as a property, a store of value. We've proven that. Everything else is a question mark. And there's a lot of hope right? A lot of venturing. What happens? If you're a speculator and if you're a venture capitalist, then you can pursue that, right? I mean, Airbnb is still illegal in my hometown. I mean, it's still, I mean, as far as I know, it's illegal to Airbnb your, your place in Miami Beach, right? But it's a successful venture. I mean, people made money on it. You can even get the company public, right? So, I mean, You've got that. I, I kind of feel like it's, you know, there's more, there's a lot higher stakes with regard to cryptocurrency. But um, does that mean that uh, the payoff is 100 times greater? Or does that mean that the regulatory pushback will be 100 times higher? I, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I think that, uh, I think that people spend a lot of time being fascinated with that. And they ought to spend more time figuring out how to buy more Bitcoin. Or they ought to spend more time that people chronically under under invest in businesses that are centralized custodial compliant businesses that could plug into bitcoin right like uh you can make a hundred billion dollars if you're fidelity plugging into bitcoin harder so why don't you go figure out how to sell that to fidelity if you want to pl plug Bitcoin into Apple computer and it might be worth a trillion dollars. Okay, but Apple's custodial, but Apple's compliant. Yeah, I get it, but it's still a trillion dollar opportunity. But I'm a crypto person. I want to go do decentralized, non-compliant. I mean, okay, so here's the issue, right? Like, is it going to be purest pure play cryptos that are going to make all the money in the next stage or is it going to be compliant custodial institutions that plug into bitcoin that are going to make all the money in the next decade now obviously i i happen to believe that the custodial public institutions have more opportunity than all of the crypto entrepreneurs do the crypto entrepreneurs don't want to think that because if you don't have a bank and if you're not Apple computer, if you don't have a country, then you can't do that, right? You wanna create your own country. You wanna create your own bank. You wanna create your own social network. If you don't have it, okay, fine. It's free world. Everybody should be able to do whatever they can do. And, and there'll be something good will come out of that. One out of a thousand or one out of 10,000 things. 
there'll be the Instagram or the Facebook that'll just explode and there'll be 99.9% failure rate and the rest of the things will all crash and burn. And I don't know which one will succeed. Hey, Michael, I wanted to ask you this uh, today. We, we kind of had this back and forth on Twitter talking about the volatility of Bitcoin moving forward. What are your kind of mental framework? What is your mental framework on that moving forward? Do you think now that we have institutions involved, you start to see that dampening um, you know, in the future, as well as what are your thoughts on, uh, I know you don't, you know, delve in too much to price action per se, but like moving forward, do you think we kind of move away from these traditional four-year cycles we've seen with Bitcoin because we have a new type of market participant now? Well, I, I mean, there's two different questions, like the four-year cycle question and then the volatility question. Let's deal with them separately. Let's start with volatility. Let's just enumerate all the sources of volatility. Uh, Bitcoin's volatile because the wash trade exemption. A fast money hedge fund can buy a billion dollars of Bitcoin at 65,000. If it trades down to 50,000, they can dump it, drive the price down to 45,000. They can buy it back the same day and they can write it back up again and they can book what might be a $250 million tax loss and carry it forward. And if they have a 40% or 50% tax rate, maybe they just tax loss harvested $125 million by being volatile, okay? So that's a source of volatility, wash trade exemption. Second source of volatility, <clears throat> all the, um, all the uh, unregulated DeFi exchanges, tons of them, right? Uh, security tokens. The fact that I can issue a, a security token, I can issue um, 10 million of them, well, I can keep 9 million of them. I can put 1 million in the float. I can then lever it up 20 to one or, or more. And I can cross collateralize it into another token that I might have. And then I can lean on that. And then I can cross collateralize that to Bitcoin. So the 6,500 crypto tokens create volatility for Bitcoin. Uh, ETH, the Ethereum platform creates volatility for Bitcoin, lots of it. If you look at the trading pattern of ETH versus Bitcoin, and I don't know if you've done it, you haven't talked much about it, you ought to. They trade minute by minute, Will. Minute by minute, like the same, like the same thing. So in the near term, what you, what you can conclude is that the volatility of the crypto ecosystem is clearly correlated and cross-collateralized and driving the volatility of Bitcoin. Um, so offshore exchanges, DeFi exchanges, security tokens, 20 to one leverage, 100 to one leverage, cross collateralization. Um, the fact that you could do wash trading, uh, not just, but it's not just wash tax trading, right? I could do wash trading on my yo-yo dine platform and I can wash it 13 times and, and print that with leverage and cross collateralize that to Bitcoin and do it after hours, right? The 24 seven, 365 market, all of those things, the lack of transparency, the lack of surveillance agreements, all the stuff that the libertarians don't want the regulators to do, that the regulators want to do, are what cause the volatility, right? Um, I think that, uh, that if, if a, a, as the regulation advances, 
the volatility is going to decrease for two reasons. One, right? If you if you can't trade, uh, if you can't trade with 20x leverage or 100x leverage, right? There'd be less volatile. If the wash rule exemption ends, if if you couldn't just dump the thing and buy it back the same day, people would hold their loss, right? That that you would start to approach uh, the way people view like Apple stock. Like if Apple traded down 10% today, I wouldn't necessarily dump it because I'd have to wait 30 days to buy it back. And my view would be, okay, I dump it, but then I'll have to buy back at a higher price in 30 days and I'm afraid to be out of the name. So, so I think that as the regulators uh, eliminate excessive leverage and as they uh, normalize the tax treatment, and by the way, I'm not just talking about Bitcoin, right? I mean, we're talking about tax treatment of all 6,500 cryptos. If they normalize that tax treatment and they eliminate the excessive leverage and they put in place those surveillance agreements, and if they, if they apply securities law, what would happen if they just uniformly applied securities law to the crypto world right now? 6,000 cryptos would stop trading. Okay, so the near term, near term, you, go, you get more volatility. I think a lot of volatility is being driven by the fact that if you're intelligent, you realize that a lot of the security tokens and all the DeFi exchanges are going to get uh, curtailed. It's just a question of how painfully will they get curtailed? How fast is it going to be a slap on the hand or is it going to be a truncation? So there's a lot of uncertainty weighing over the market there. And that's cross collateralized and that trades into the Bitcoin market cap, right? That anxiety. So on the other side of it, if they fix all that, imagine a world where, um, Bitcoin wasn't collateral for your ETH and Dogecoin and Shiba coin and your yo-yo coin trades, right? What if the, what if the market decoupled completely? Like it's a, it creates this, there's a parade of wonderful outcomes, right? Which is as the, as the market gets regulated, as this, as the DeFi exchanges and the, and the security tokens start to get regulated, then the volatility from those things in the Bitcoin marketplace deteriorates, right? The cap, what if 95% of the capital is Bitcoin and 5% of the capital is the altcoins? Then you wouldn't have the tail wagging the dog, right? Or in this case, maybe the dog wagging the tail, right? As the case may be. Um, so, so I think that the, the, the crypto economy is this very interesting thing I mean, if you want to say good things about it, you would say it's they're good marketers, right? All the, the, the entire crypto world, crypto exchanges, they market crypto aggressively and they bring lots of people in the asset class. But the cost, the price you pay is like excessive volatility. And the fact that there's like 37 Shiba, you know, puppy coins keeps the big institutions from getting in in a big way, right? So institutional capital that would buy billions and billions of dollars of Bitcoin and hold it forever, kind of doesn't want to be in the same party as Shiba puppy coin, you know, getting tweeted about, right? So I think that uh, as, the, 
as the entire asset class institutionalizes and as all of the excessive, uh, highly levered, deregulated behaviors start to get curtailed, then the volatility driven by crypto decreases. And at the same time, the amount of capital flowing from institutions increases and the time horizon stretches out, right? As, as, and as the view of this goes from, it's a speculative, highly levered asset where anything goes to, it's a long-term store of value. I'm gonna buy it and hold it for my family for 30 years, right? As we rotate from one extreme to the other extreme, the volatility starts to ameliorate, right? Where, where is there not that much volatility? Like uh, real real estate? like a building, but there's still some, right? I mean, real estate goes up in value 20%. But when you get to real property, you know, especially pro uh, property, which is a long-term store of value, you know, you're, you're not marketing it to market and um, nobody, is, nobody is pledging, and they're not trading in and out of real estate with Dogecoin and Yo-Yo coin with leverage on Saturday night. So just look at this, just look at this recent move we had, right? I mean, just like, you know, if you kind of look at the, the dichotomy of it, if you will, like it was pretty much just, we had a bunch of levered longs, right? It was like a Friday night when we had this massive, like 25% wipeout. It was like a low liquidity time. You know, I watched the order books pretty closely. All the bids got pulled, which were clearly spoof bids, right? If we were in like a regular, you know, a regulated environment, that kind of behavior would not take place. You, know, you can't trade with more than two to one leverage in a regulated environment. You see, you take away 90% of the leverage. When, uh, when BitMEX had their incident last year, right? When the, the CEO was indicted or the officers weren't indicted, um, I watched the market and the volatility, the, the, um, the trading volume got cut in half and the volatility got curtailed by some dramatic amount. Like it correlated very directly. Yeah, so I think um, that the industry's moving from entrepreneurial, anything goes, unregulated, to institutional, regulated. And uh, that's the maturing of it. And uh, as it moves toward, toward institutional regulation, it's going to be good for Bitcoiners, right? So the, the irony of all this is there's a, there's a lot of people in the community that are against regulation, but ultimately the regulation is probably going to be beneficial. And in fact, I'm almost certain it's beneficial to Bitcoin more so than anything else. It's not beneficial to a security token trading offshore without, you know, proper disclosures, right? And, and a lot of times it's not beneficial to the entrepreneurs, but it's, in, it's beneficial to the holders of Bitcoin and it's beneficial to the institutions and to the governments and to the civilization. So, you know, I guess if you wanted an analogy, you could look at how we incorporated uh, fire or um, electricity uh, and new building materials, elevators into our cities. You know, they're all regulated, right? I mean, like before you can actually take, you know, get a certificate of occupancy, 
the fire marshal shows up and they, they walk around to see if your building's going to catch fire. Why? Because the Chicago fire, because if your building burns down the middle of a city, you might take out the entire city, right? So why? Because you represent a systemic risk to the entire city. And then they check the electricity. Why? Because you might electrocute a four-year-old, right? I mean, if you touch, you ever touch a, you know, a power main, like you ever do your own maintenance in your house, cut through the drywall and touch one of those lines. If you've ever done it, it's very memorable. You will never forget the feeling that you had. But we have this, we have these euphemisms, you know, or idioms in our English language. And one of them is shocked. Okay, I challenge you, figure out how many people that use the word shocked have ever actually been shocked. I've been shocked. Like if you've actually been shocked, it is unforgettable experience. It's like, it's, it's like the scariest thing that ever will happen to you. And um, that's why if you want to actually run electricity across the entire society, you know, some rules matter. Same on roads, you know, like a, a very simple rule, like drive on the right side of the road and not the left side of the road. And you can't swerve from one or the other. And when you see a red light stop, if I took away those two rules, the red light rule and the, and the right side of the road rule, you know, your, your traffic accident rate would go up by orders of magnitude and the average throughput in the society would, you know, collapse by a factor of 50. No one would get anywhere. So you, you have to have some degree of, of regulation in order for technology to actually be adopted. And um, I think in this particular case, as the entire crypto economy gets regulated, it'll grow the ecosystem. But, what, but the big beneficiary will be uh, institutions that use Bitcoin and Bitcoin. And the losers will be, would be Bitcoins, like, like the altcoin that wants to be Bitcoin, because all of a sudden there's no reason for it, right? And then, uh, and then entrepreneurs that want to compete with, uh, with the institutions. It's like Apple Computer's got a billion, you know, uh, more than a billion customers. They could roll out a hardware wallet on the iPhone and they could have a billion people using it within 36 months. Would that be good for Bitcoin? Yes. Would that be good for every company that has a Bitcoin hardware wallet? No. Right? So I think it's pretty important when you look at all these things to distinguish between what's good for Bitcoin and a Bitcoin holder versus what's good for a Bitcoin entrepreneur and a Bitcoin business versus what's good for, the, for every other crypto entrepreneur. And if, if, if you want to, if you draw this concentric ring, right, if you're holding 100% pure Bitcoin, then a normalized regulated environment isn't threatening to you at all, right? Bitcoin's going if, if the United States government embraced Bitcoin, regulated it all, Bitcoin price would go to $10 million a coin. And if you're just holding one Bitcoin, you have $10 million, right? Very simple. If you're in a pure Bitcoin economy, like Bitcoin miner, Okay, is it good for Bitcoin miner? Well, it might be, but you wouldn't want to wake up and find out that the US military is mining Bitcoin because then it wouldn't be good for you, right? So, so there are some things 
that may or may not be good for a Bitcoin miner or a Bitcoin exchange. Your pure Bitcoin, though, if they basically regulated all the other security tokens, then you're fine, right? Pure Bitcoin play, you're good no matter what happens in the rest of the securities. And you know, if everybody has to pay their taxes, and if everybody if everybody has to abide by banking rules and securities rules and intellectual property law and and the like and and tort law you're fine you're a bitcoin business but um if you're an entrepreneur and the institutions join you're not quite so well off like a, a startup for a hardware wallet you know has to compete against square cash app and square cash app has to compete against apple so an apple has to compete against google right so so there's competitive risk there, depending on what you are. And uh, that's why, that's why, you know, when people, you know, they ask for advice, I say, well, the obvious, the, the pure safe haven is own Bitcoin as a store of value. And every single time you move out one concentric circle and put a twist on it, like I'm going to mine Bitcoin, I'm going to trade Bitcoin, I'm going to get yield on Bitcoin. I'm going to do other cryptos. I'm going to do decentralized. I'm going to do a hardware device. I mean, as you move out, I'm going to offer an insurance plan. I'm going to offer a bank savings account. Now you're competing and you're all, you got to, you got to deal with com competition and compliance. Right. And, and there, but any of them, either of them can wipe you out. Right. You could be non-compliant, but competitive and the regulator shut you down, or you can be compliant, but you're not competitive you get shut down. And so there's concentric rings of complexity and risk as you go out. And, um, and this entire environment, you know, is it's evolving week by week, month by month. Right now, there are a lot of advantages to be in the pure crypto space, because you've got massive leverage, and they're non-compliant, and they can do things that the, the centralized institutions can't do. But the issue is, can you cross over and can you grow up? Like you can do business there for a while, but at some point, can you get the licenses and become compliant? And can you bring that company public, right? Can you, uh, can you actually, uh, can you live to enjoy the gains that you got by being entrepreneurial? And that is the, the challenge that everybody has. Like a, take a Bitcoin mining example. You could have gone to China and you could have mined Bitcoin very profitably with free electricity. But sometimes when something looks too good to be true, right? If I said, Will, come here and I'll give you free electricity for the next 10 years because I just want Bitcoin miners to set up in my country or in my state, would you do it? What happens after two years when I just change my mind and I say, well, I notice all the Bitcoin miners are making a lot of money. Now I want 20% of that or half, right? And if, if something looks too good to be true, oftentimes it is too good to be true, or at least the proper way to say it is there's always a risk. The risk with free electricity in China was there was going to be a crackdown and eventually someone is going to take offense to that. Right. And, and now you've got all your equipment 
stuck in a place where where the um, political environment is not really favorable anymore. So, so you're an entrepreneur. You have these very interesting challenges. Do I do do I do Square Cash App, which is uh, it's custodial wallet, and I only sell Bitcoin, but I can't do what you can do with uh, I can't do what Binance can do, right? I can't do what an offshore crypto exchange can do. I can't give you a yield on your product. I can't give you an earned product. I can't trade Dogecoin. Okay, well, they lost a lot of business by not trading Dogecoin and giving yield, right? That's the negative, but they're compliant and they have a license. That's the positive. Or, you know, you can offer a hundred to one leverage and trade a thousand things. You'll get a lot more customers and you can have no KYC. You get a lot more customers, but there's a lot of liability there. Now, how do you go from one to the other and what should you do? That's what makes the business very challenging, right? That's why, that's why you, know, you, you, you really need to think that through very hard. And if you're an investor, you've got to figure out where do you want your exposure to be? But I think, I think the subject we're on is volatility. Bottom line is the industry's it's it's not very tightly regulated and it's cross collateralized, cross correlated, and it's highly volatile. But it's getting less volatile as it gets more institutionalized, and as it gets more regulated and more institutionalized, it'll get less volatile. And if you wait until all of these items are resolved, if you wait until every single crypto exchange is a national securities exchange with a surveillance agreement with the SEC and they only trade twelve tokens or six, by the way, maybe there's only one. Well, right. If I said to you, name me the 12 cryptos that are property and not a security, what would be the next 11 you would name? There's 6,500, right? Name the next 10. I wouldn't name any of them like, like, I would not bet any material amount of money on anything. Uh, if you said buy something which you're confident is property, there's only one thing in the universe, in the digital universe that I'm confident is property is Bitcoin, one thing. So what happens if everything else disappeared and there was Bitcoin? Well, what happens to the exchanges? Well, I mean, the point is a lot of, a lot of volatility goes away. So if you wait for the volatility to go away, I mean, will that happen? I don't know. Roll the clock forward 10 years and imagine the entire industry cleans itself up and they, and they apply a much higher standard. Well, presumably Bitcoin would be like 5 million or 10 million a coin and there'll be less volatility, but you'll have missed out on a 100x gain. So if you wait for the volatility to go away, the price you pay is, is you lose the opportunity. But... If you go into Bitcoin right now, you accept all the volatility that comes from all these things I just lay, I named out or I laid out. And the unfortunate circumstances when the regulators shut down one security token and it panics the market is going to cause volatility and maybe even a downtrade in Bitcoin. Should it? No. It ought to trade the opposite direction, but sometimes it, it trades when there's a risk off day everything trades down, even though the most logical thing to do would be to buy the high quality property and sell the low quality thing. Like if I told you every single security token, every single crypto other than Bitcoin's disappearing tomorrow, 
you should obviously sell them all and buy Bitcoin, right? What would happen is everybody would sell everything, right? They'd sell everything. And then at some point, the market would sort itself out. And then they would realize that there's one safe thing and they would buy that and that would come back, right? So that's what I think about uh, volatility. And, uh, you know, you take... Uh, you take the good with the bad, right? The good is the entire crypto ecosystem is drawing lots of attention and drawing lots of capital and recruiting millions of people every month, right? And you can't, that's not bad. And they are driving this agenda. So there are a lot of good things. And, uh, and the negative is you have to absorb their volatility. With regard to the 40 year cycle, I mean, I, again, I don't, I, I don't really believe in the four-year cycle anymore. I think we're beyond it. I think that, Thanks, um, I think that uh, the, the material change in the state was when uh, companies, when Bitcoin miners started coming public. I think, I think you know, the entire theory of the four-year cycle is Bitcoin miners are the primary source of Bitcoin supply and they have to sell Bitcoin to pay their expenses. And every year they get paid half as much. So they have to double the price it's kind of like this supply side, uh, you know, thing. But I, I don't buy that model. I never bought that model. I think that the reason the price goes up is demand. Like when somebody, it's a very simple thought experiment, right? If Apple bought $100 billion worth of Bitcoin tomorrow, the price is going to $10 million a coin or some large amount. It doesn't matter what the miners think, right? It matters what Apple thinks. Right? It matters what the person that's on the buy side thinks. If there's more demand to buy than there is supply, then the price is going up. When a government, you know, if, if Saudi Arabia decided to buy $25 billion of Bitcoin and that hits the wire, the price is going up. Other people are going to bid against them. It's going up. Right? So the price is driven by adoption. It's driven by technology. It's driven by inflation. And the, the, the three first order factors of price are adoption, inflation, technology. And to a certain extent, the technology is, is a driver because it drives adoption, right? When Apple builds Bitcoin wallets into a billion iPhones and Google builds it into 6 billion Android phones and they plug Lightning, if Lightning got plugged into Android and iOS and you could, and you could move money at the speed of light, and if the US uh, JP Morgan issued a stable coin and if Apple supported the stable dollar in Bitcoin and they deployed it to billions and billions of people, price is going up, right? Because, it, because of technology, yeah. Because of adoption, yeah. It, and if the inflation rate is 40% in Argentina or 80% in some country, everybody with an iPhone or an Android phone is flipping all of their currency to dollars and they're going to think about it. They're going to flip the dollars to Bitcoin and the price is going up. So the price is going to be a function of technology and inflation and adoption. And, uh, and the second order effect, the, the theoretical Austrian economics driver for price is going to be productivity of the economy that adopts Bitcoin as its reserve asset, right? Like for example, if there were a hundred micro strategies, micro strategy generates $100 million a year in cash flow. Okay, well, so we buy $100 million worth of Bitcoin every year because we generate 100 million in cash flow. 
If there were 10 of us, that's a billion in Bitcoin a year. If there's 100 of us, there's 10 billion in Bitcoin a year. If we grow our cash flows 10%, right, that, <clears throat> that 10 billion a year becomes 11 billion the next year. If we grow our cash flows by another 5%, it becomes $11.5 billion or 11 point whatever, right? So productivity is the second order factor. Uh, all the productivity of everyone that's adopted Bitcoin is their primary reserve asset. But that's, but that's not nearly as powerful as the first order factors, right? Inflation, technology, and adoption. And adoption is kind of like marketing. But, mar but, but what could drive adoption? The government says Bitcoin is property. These hundred thousand, these hundred altcoins are securities. That would drive adoption. Like, uh, for example, uh, if you go on Twitter right now, um, if if you want to do a little experiment, uh, go on Twitter right now. Look at my profile and look at a tweet I replied to Cash App. And Cash App said you can now send stock or Bitcoin as a holiday gift. And I said, great, um, would you give cash? 11% of the people said they'd give cash. Would you give stock? 3% said they would give stock. Would you give Bitcoin? Right, 86%. And there's uh, a lot of votes on that, 1,000 votes. Okay, what does that mean? That means that people don't wanna give securities, William. <laughs> If the token's a security, it's going to be in the 3%. Apple's this. Uh, for example, what's a better security? Apple, Google, or Yo-Yo coin? Right? I mean, what would you rather have? Facebook, Apple, Google, Twitter, or Dogecoin, Puppycoin, the third? The answer is, of course, you, you really would rather have the digital monopoly security. So then why are people moving Puppycoin around? because it's not deemed a security. It's, it's like getting treated somewhere between currency and a property right now, or currency and, yeah, and a token. And they're not really abiding by currency law and they're not abiding by security law. But, it's, but, but as soon as you reclassify those things as a, as a currency or as a security, then you're going to see a lurch, 20x preference for Bitcoin. So regulation will actually drive adoption of Bitcoin. You see, because right now there's confusion about which of the thousand things I should gift as a holiday gift. But you see, there's no confusion right here. Look at my screen, like, like people have a view toward cash. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll send you some digital dollars if I can, not for long. And they have a view toward, toward property, property's better, 10X better, 9X better. And their view toward securities, securities are risky. Why are they risky? Because people control them, rightfully so. Securities are risky and they're competitive and there's 10,000 different securities. So the four-year halving is like, it, it was important before you had these dynamics. Maybe it was never super important. I don't know. I don't really care. I don't think it really matters. I think that what really matters here is account. Mason, you, you might have an opinion. Like I count 16 or 17 publicly traded Bitcoin miners by the end of the year. There's probably more. Maybe there's 20. Do you have, a, do you have any off-the-cuff idea of how many publicly traded Bitcoin mining companies there are? Yeah, I mean, I think it's around that number and, and there's five SPACs that are entering. So I'd say, you know, it's probably around 20 total, including those SPACs. 
So doesn't that mean we're probably headed toward two dozen publicly traded Bitcoin mining companies in the first half of 2022, maybe the first quarter? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think by the end of Q1, we'll probably have 20 plus minus a few. And then, and then you know, how do you value those companies, right? You look at different metrics, you know, computational hash power, Bitcoin reserves, um, what well, so is the market well, price so in? So the revenue of all Bitcoin miners right now, what is it, 14, 15 billion a year? I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. Case for Bitcoin, I'll tell you. I think it's, I think it's about 14 or 15 billion. Yeah, that, that sounds right. Okay. So the halving, the halving says, I cut that in half. That's $7 billion number. So if Bitcoin miners stop selling 7 billion in Bitcoin, that's the same as a halving. Now, the average market cap of a publicly traded Bitcoin miner is about a billion dollars. 24 Bitcoin miners is 24 billion, actually probably more. I can count off the top of my head. There's three that are like 12, 15 billion total. Okay, so you'll probably have about 24, maybe $40 billion market cap, but between 20 and $40 billion market cap for those miners. Now, there are, I, I can count two of them that raised 1.2, three of them raised $2 billion in the past couple of months, just three raised $2 billion. Okay, so I think you can expect that once they're public, uh, $25 billion worth of market cap company is going to raise about $12 billion in capital a year, easy. $12 billion of capital. What, what does a Bitcoin miner do with $12 billion of cash? Not, not, not enough miners Bitcoin. to buy. Yeah. You, you can't buy $12 billion worth of miners feasibly. Yeah, you can. In one right? year cycle. Yeah. Right. The entire, in fact, they're already spoken for, but that's like a $5 billion type business, maybe something five, six. So what happens is once you raise more than that amount of capital, and, oh, and by the way, the miners are running with a 70% profit margin. So you got $24 billion worth of miners that are going to generate $10 billion of cash flow next year, and they're going to raise $12 billion of capital. So now I've got you to 22, probably 24 billion in capital next year flows into the business. You can only spend 6 billion of it. Where's the rest of the capital go? Towards Bitcoin, right? You're going you're gonna to buy more Bitcoin reserve. There's only two things you can do. You can either not sell Bitcoin or you can buy Bitcoin. You're Bitcoin miner. So they're both equivalent, right? Buying Bitcoin is the same as not selling Bitcoin. So if I told you that um, the supply of Bitcoin on the exchange was going to shrink by $12 billion next year, how does that compare to the impact of the halving? You see, Super the, halving substantial. Your, the halving is 7 billion. I've got a double halving event. So the halving really isn't the issue. At the point that the Bitcoin miners generate collectively more than $14 billion in free cash flow, then there really isn't any Bitcoin for sale, right? If there's 14 billion in Bitcoin that's going to be sold theoretically if all the revenue is sold as Bitcoin. 14 billion in cash flow takes your stock to flow to infinity. At 24 billion in cash flow, the stock to flow goes to negative. 50 or something, you see?
if stock to flow is 50 now, it goes to infinity, then it goes to negative 50. So the Bitcoin miners become effective Bitcoin sinks. They actually start slurping up Bitcoin. They don't sell Bitcoin. So, so that's why I don't really focus on the four-year halving cycle because there's, there's never been an example of an industry where, where the miners were producing a scarcity and not a commodity. See, every other mine, right? Copper miners, silver miners, gold miners, oil, drill rigs, natural gas, right? Any kind of commodity producer, any factory, they're producing a commodity. And by definition, a commodity is unbounded or unlimited in the amount that you can produce. But a scarcity, which we would define as Bitcoin, is capped at 21 million. This is, name another industry with 24 publicly traded companies producing a scarcity. Think I don't think it exists. Yeah, it doesn't exist. I mean, it's interesting, you know, getting your perspective here. So there's 780,000 Bitcoin that will be mined by the end of 2024, right? And then we'll have the halving. So that'll leave another 390,000 to be mined from the cycle of 2024 to 2028. So if I'm a Bitcoin miner, like I would be levering up as much debt as possible and, and running with the ride of, hey, I've got 1.2 million Bitcoin I can mine by the end of 2028. And then beyond that, you know, the supply is, you know, drastically reduced every four years. So why, why aren't you just, you know, going to get unlimited debt? Well, to the points that you said, but beyond that, if you can maintain those revenues and you're really chasing minting new supply, then you should be targeting right now. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a game of aggression, financial aggression, and you got to get big really fast. You got to raise as much money as you can. You have to buy as much Bitcoin as you can. My view would be I would raise as much capital as I can. I'd buy Bitcoin. Then I would buy all the hash power I can. So if I can buy other Bitcoin miners, I would roll up every privately traded Bitcoin miner I could. You can see how this works, right? If you're trading with a 10x revenue multiple or 20x revenue multiple, and you can buy private miners at a 3x or 5x or 8x revenue multiple, you just buy them all. You buy them for stock, right? And you, you uh, all of a sudden go from being a billion dollar miner to a $10 billion miner to a $25 billion miner. And then you raise capital either through equity or debt or converts. And then you buy up all the hash power or, or you lock up all the mining rigs, but they're already sold out for the next year and a half, probably. I would be shocked if the mining rigs don't get sold out for the next three to four years in a, in a capital intensive business where there's a, a duopoly or something. People, sometimes they will just buy those delivery positions out for five years or 10 years. Uh, where, does it, where do you see that? Uh, take example, Boeing and Airbus in the airline business where like Emirates or, or, you know, another Etihad, they would buy like the next eight years worth of seven, eight, sevens, just buy them all, lock everybody else out of the market. So um, I think that you can buy that up, but you don't need that much capital just to lock up all the delivery. And uh, then you end up just having excess capital. So what do you do? You buy the Bitcoin. Ideally you buy the Bitcoin before it appreciates in value. You know, there's, there's one other example of an industry where you have um, a small group of companies um, that, um, that are producing a scarcity. 
and that would be the digital monopolies like uh, Apple and Google. You know, like, like if you end up creating a monopoly, like a legal monopoly of some sort, you, you've got like a arm lock, right? One way or the other. So, um, so Bitcoin, Bitcoin is obviously a much better, much, much better industry than, uh, than any of the other mining businesses. And Bitcoin miners are, are really much better businesses than other types of mines. And ultimately, the dynamic to watch for Bitcoin price, it's going to be regulation and it's going to be uh, capital markets activity of Bitcoin miners and it's going to be technology and adoption in general. And any one of them, right? Like it, it only takes one of them to drive this. For example, the Bitcoin miners could on their back, they could drag the entire Bitcoin industry. If they just get aggressive and raise $20 billion next year, this is, you know, Will, what if there's no Bitcoin for sale next year from any miner, right? Like forget about all the other dynamics, right? So, uh, so that's one possibility. Any big tech company, Google, Apple, Facebook, anybody that built Amazon, Microsoft, any of them that built Bitcoin into their offering could drive how much uh, Square Cash App sold $14 billion of Bitcoin. They're not the most powerful big tech company, 14 billion one year. If Square Cash App can drive 14 billion in one year, what do you think Google can do? 100 billion in one year? What could Microsoft do? We talked about this before, like I, one of my pet peeves is I really think the killer app uh, for digital property is I post like uh, 100,000 Satoshis uh, and get an orange check from Twitter. Like if anybody could go on Twitter and they could post 100,000 Satoshis from a lightning wallet and get verified, then you could reset all your Twitter profile so that you have to have a orange check or a blue check to post or comment or DM you. If they upgraded that and said, you can have a, a green check for one Bitcoin posted. And I'll give you a purple check if you can post 10 Bitcoin. Now you create like this simple verification architecture. Now, what do they prove? I proved you're credit worthy. What do you do? You, you build it into the interface. And now when everybody wants to post on my Twitter and say, I'm stupid, they have to first, first post 100,000 Satoshis. And if I block them, then uh, Twitter goes back and says, you know, you just got fined a thousand Satoshis for being hostile online. And if someone sends me a direct message and they don't have an orange check, they don't get through. And if they want to message me, you want to message Michael Saylor, you got to post a hundred thousand Satoshis. Okay, great. I'll read your comment. And if they told me to like, you know, they're going to chop me into a million pieces and I'm stupid. I block, they get fined again. If they go online, they, they post some hate speech, maybe they, they forfeit their orange check and they get fined 100,000 Satoshis. If you did that, you basically post a cybersecurity deposit, that could go viral to like 3 billion people, right? Every, everybody on Google, everybody on Microsoft, everybody with Gmail, everybody with WhatsApp, Telegram, Twitter, Facebook, Messenger. What if everybody online had to post 100,000 Satoshis in order to DM you or comment or post a, post a review or a little commentary on, um, 
or if you wanted to go watch something on YouTube, do you know, okay, here's a little test. Do you know how often every week some Eastern European hacker posts a Michael Saylor Bitcoin giveaway scam? It used to be 55 times a week. In the last two weeks, it's uh, 1,550 times a week, like every seven minutes. I have three That's teams crazy. of people, three teams of people 24 seven, every 15 minutes taking them down. And you know, when you go online, I look and it's like 15,000 people are currently listening to Michael Saylor live and his Bitcoin giveaway. Okay, how do they get 15,000 people to listen to me live every seven minutes, 1500 times a week to scam people? No cost of malice, right? No, no cost of malicious behavior. Okay, so what if it costs you, right? What, what's 100,000 Satoshis, right? It's like uh, 40 bucks, $40. What if it costs you $40? every time in your life, well, in order to get like a pass to go on to YouTube. For the average person, they would pay $40. In fact, I pay $10 a month to use YouTube because I, I want to avoid the ads. So if you had to post a $40 deposit once, not a big deal for a person, but for the scammer, they would have to pay $60,000 every seven minutes because they would have to you know, post up $40, $40 times 15,000 to actually create the appearance. And then if we introduce like the purple check or the green check, they would have to post 10 Bitcoin. What if it costs you 10 Bitcoin every, every seven minutes? Okay, now a different situation. Now you're monetizing malicious behavior you know, and, and evil, right? And uh, now back up and ask yourself the question, what does that do for, um, for social media? You deliver safety and security, basically safety and civility in cyberspace to billions and billions of people. Bitcoin is cybersecurity at the speed of light, right? Cybersecurity at the speed of light. How do you do it? Digital property on the lightning network. Why do you need it? Well, because you need to be able to do microtransactions. The killer application is post 100,000 Satoshis to get verified. Anybody in the world can do it from your Lightning wallet. What's the implication? 99.8% of all the hostile behavior disappears online. You've got a totally new revenue model. Now you can trust incoming messages on WhatsApp or Telegram or Instagram. You know, you don't have like Russian bots like hitting you up all the time. I can't read, I can't read my Twitter DMs. I have 50,000 like automated spam bot postings on Twitter. My company has three levels of spam filters. You ever read your, I mean, you read the stuff that gets caught in your email filter, right? It's so, ridiculous, yeah. So the, ju the genius of course is, right? Uh, proof of work was created to stop spam. And we never applied it that way, but now we can, right? Proof of work gives you digital property. Digital property gives you Bitcoin. Bitcoin moves on lightning. Bitcoin also can move on a centralized rail like Square Cash App or PayPal. 
but but let's let's focus on lightning because lightning is one satoshi one second right so move bitcoin via lightning wallet to social media and then you've got six billion people with smartphones everybody basically posts what what's six billion times forty dollars you know <laughs> 2.4 trillion, but you know, you start by, by driving a hundred billion dollars worth of demand, but then what happens when a business has to actually post a Bitcoin? There's a hundred million businesses. Like how many Bitcoin do you think someone should have to post before they ask you to wire them a Bitcoin or wire them money or something? It's very reasonable that you could expect that big brands would, uh, and big influencers would post a Bitcoin or even more than one Bitcoin, multiple Bitcoin. So you could have demand for hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin or millions of Bitcoin from institutional users and also a million Bitcoin from consumer users. And then all these big uh, cyber networks become banks, if you will. And then uh, we're back to technology drives adoption. I mean, you see the adoption angle, you see the technology angle. What's the use case? The use case is like cybersecurity, security in cyberspace to 8 billion people. What's the other use case? Utility. For example, can I read my DMs on Instagram? No. Can I read my Twitter DMs? No. Can I trust a message from you over Telegram? No. Can I trust a message received from you over any messaging app? No, right? If Will Clemente reaches out to me on Facebook Messenger tomorrow, how many steps does it take before I know it's even you, right? So can I, you know, I, I post something on Twitter. It says there's 950 comments. You ever try to read the comments? I click on them. There's like 20 I can read. All the rest have been like downgraded as potentially hostile or something they don't work, right? Stuff doesn't work, right? We have become numb to the fact that a lot of stuff doesn't work in cyberspace. Can you trust the ratings on Yelp? Can you trust the, the stuff that people say? What percentage of the Twitter accounts are actually real human beings? Can you, uh, well, we, we know that there are thousands of fake ones that try to follow you all the time. So, you really, you want to focus on something. Don't focus upon the four-year halving cycle. Focus upon the regulation, the education, the technology, the integration. And, you know, it's like, it kind of, I find it to be really kind of a tragedy in a way that there's so much energy going into reinventing the wheel, like Bitcoin and lightning, right? Bitcoin is the property network. Lightning is the transaction network. Okay, you've got a non-custodial transaction network. You've got a non-custodial asset network. Okay, so there's your wheel. Why do we got to reinvent it 18,000 times? Why don't we figure out how to plug the wheel into Facebook and Google and Amazon and Apple and Microsoft and YouTube and fill in the blank, every single thing we use in our life that's either unsafe or full of garbage, 
or difficult or lacking signal. If we do that, then um, we'll just bring a, a, a huge amount of good to the civilization. You know, you'll drive up the value of, of Bitcoin by two orders of magnitude. And you don't really need to invent, you know, a ton more features. You don't need that many more features. We, we can polish the lightning a little bit, but really the innovation should be in the application layers and the network layers. Like, how about like, why don't we just use Bitcoin to eliminate all email spam in the world for everybody forever? How about that? Can we do that? Yeah. How long will it take? 36 months. Good thing, bad thing? Obviously a good thing. What politician is going to actually fight that? What do you need? You need Bitcoin plus lightning plugged into Office 365 with an orange check. That's the opportunity that I'm really enthusiastic about. You know, it's, it's, there's so many things like that that are sitting there, right? What, what's that worth? I mean, like each of these, Bitcoin's worth a trillion dollars to the P&L on the operating side of the business to all the big tech companies, trillion each. Google, Microsoft, Facebook, Apple, they could all generate a trillion dollars of operating value by building it into their products and their services properly. They just haven't figured it out yet. And then it's worth another trillion dollars on their balance sheet to their stock if they plugged it into as their treasury asset. And uh, every other company, you know, pretty much every company on earth, I figure you could probably double the market cap of the company if they figured out how to integrate digital property into it, either on the balance sheet side or the P&L side. And they're all straightforward and they don't require another token. Right, so I would focus on that. Do you guys have other stuff you wanted to cover on your list? I'm good, Mason. If if you have anything no, I else, think, yeah, I think it's a good spot yeah. to to start wrapping it up. I know we're way over on time here, so yeah. yeah. I think you answered our whole list through through different segments. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. Hey, Michael, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you so much. I mean, th this was incredible. Um, you know, this is, this will be a huge Christmas gift to all the, the, uh, the holders out there. So um, you know, I just, I just wanted to say, we really appreciate your time and, and coming on. I mean, this conversation was just incredible. Do you have any kind of last words you want to leave the hodlers out there with, um, especially as we head into this new year? Happy hodl days. <laughs> My last it. words are, I just think everything macroeconomically is great for Bitcoin. We're going through volatility. And I, I think I explained to you why we have volatility. And uh, I think that everybody should remember their laser eyes, right? The whole point of laser eyes is focus. You've got, you've got digital property. You've got Bitcoin. You've got lightning. If you just hold on and think out 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, the entire world is going to have to evolve the regulatory apparatus, all the technology platforms, all the applications. There's a lot of things that are going to evolve, but you know, if you just stay focused through thick and thin, ultimately things will work out well because, because it's rational. Everything I've described is rational. And because it's rational, somebody will do it at some point. It's just a question of the sequencing of things. The thing you don't want to do right now is you don't want to lose focus. 
right? You don't want to lose focus. You don't want to lose conviction. You know, you've got the winning strategy. Don't allow the volatility and all the marketing hysteria and everybody with the conflict of interest to shake your commitment, right? The, the world's going to be full of 10,000 ventures and every venture is going to say, blah, blah, blah. This is better than Bitcoin because of this or whatever. But the, the test of a really good venture is, are they leveraging Bitcoin and Lightning, right? Especially Bitcoin, are they leveraging it to do something better or are they trying to reinvent it? And if they're leveraging it for something better, then it's just a risky venture, right? It's a venture, it's a risky venture. And, and you can choose to invest or not and buy the product or not. But if they're trying to reinvent it, then they've lost focus, they've lost their way. Right. And, and uh, that's that's a different thing entirely. Caveat emptor. I think um, I think we're really so close to a major breakthrough here. And I hate to see people lose faith because they're getting bounced around as they go down the rapids. Because I I think if you roll the clock back 12 months or 18 months and you told me everything that was going to happen, it would have exceeded my wildest dreams. Like I, I think it's been all good. And once you think about it from a fundamental point of view, like the way that Bitcoin has been embraced by the world, I think you realize that we're on the right path. We just uh, got to keep working and, and you got to work through the trolls and the haters and the critics. And then everybody that wants to reinvent the wheel because they have a personal agenda and, and you got to nurture, nurture um, the real virtues in the community, right? There's, and if you're a Bitcoin exchange, right, then be thinking about how do I incorporate lightning and, and upgrade the exchange. If you're a Bitcoin miner, obviously you got to figure out how to upgrade your mining operation and f figure out what is it you can do right now to increase the value of the entire ecosystem. And, you know, there, the checklist every morning is kind of simple. It's like, get up, educate somebody on Bitcoin, work on a project to buy more Bitcoin, right? Maybe work on a project to make Bitcoin better, make the entire ecosystem better, right? Add value. Uh, and then finally, figure go learn and study and figure out what happened in Bitcoin, you know, since you last looked to keep yourself update. And then the next day, do it again, right? And that's focus. And I think that the really the great companies do that. Uh, great, great uh, business people do that. And, and where you start to stray off the path and you lose your focus, right? You get distracted, you get insecure, right? That's, it's dilutive. All these things are dilutive distractions, right? And the dilutive distractions always come in like a good idea, but you've got to ask the question, is it a great idea? Is it, is it going to make Bitcoin better? And is it going to get me more Bitcoin? And is it going to educate more people on Bitcoin? Or is it just a different thing? Because the world's got 10,000 other ideas. You tweeted, something the, you tweeted something the other day. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, mess up the wording here. But it was something like, when there's nothing to do, do nothing. Right? And I think that that's kind of a, a good way to kind of wrap that up there. Warren Buffett quote. Yeah, the trick is when there's nothing to do, do nothing. 
It's like that scene in the Bruce Lee movie. You ever see, it's probably End of the Dragon where Bruce Lee is basically beating up 250 guys. It's like a, a, a slugfest and he's just <laughs> overcome like a hundred of them. And he's the best fighter, you know, in the in, entire palace. And then at some point, the you know, the, the evil guy drops, captures Bruce Lee in some kind of like octagon and drops glass all around him. So he's trapped in the octagon and, and he can't get out and they can't get in. And he sees the hundred fighters and they're all getting ready to come after him. And he looks and he puts his nunchucks over his shoulders and he sits down in the lotus position and he just conserves his energy and he waits. He's not going to get rattled. He's going to wait until the walls come up. And when the walls come up, he's going to start fighting again. But it's such a, it's a classic Zen-like moment, right? That is so iconic, right? Sometimes there's nothing to do, do nothing, right? Thank you for giving me a platform, guys, and, and, and for the opportunity to talk about this. And uh, keep up the good work. I mean, you're both making extraordinary contributions to the community and uh, brings a smile to my face. Hey, thanks for coming on, Michael. Take care. Have a good holiday. You too. Bye.